The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. And I'd invite you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of the scripture. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them lest their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Dale, for reading the scriptures to us this morning and for us. And I loved her emphasis when she said, by no means, because it is the strongest form of a negative that Paul could give. I am uh, excited to be able to share the word this morning with us. And um, before we get going, I'm just going to get some help on this. (laughs) We are going to, all right, I'm going to let, you guys can see it. I I, I can't see it here, but I wanted to announce this because this is a really important uh, initiative of our board and staff called Come to the Core. We've had a few, a couple of now. And uh, it's an open invitation to anyone that is connected to our church family that wants to believe and follow us and, and follow along with us as to some of the priorities of ministry that God has led us to. Really, this coming, or on the 14th, we're going to be talking a lot about the journey that the board and the staff have been on in the last uh, year and a bit. Um, during the whole COVID season, God has really focused our attention on what it means to be a disciple-making church. And so if you're, if you're wanting to come along that evening, we're going to have tables in this room all spread out, and we're going to have people at tables that are going to just be leading the discussions, but there's also going to be presentations. 
And so please put that on your calendar and join us that evening if you can. <clears throat> well, one of the things that Pat and I love to do with our grandson, Finley, is we love to, to play the, the game Name That Tune, okay? So here I go. I'm going to try and see if you can name that tune, okay? You just call it out as soon as you know it. Here we go. La 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 Zacchaeus, that's right. Let's get to the next slide. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You know the words? And a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Ah, that's not come. He said, Zacchaeus, you come down. Because I'm going to your house for, what is it, today or for tea? Which one is it? Today, okay. <laughs> All right. I love the scripture in that very passage where, you're going to have to help me out, uh, IBK, on this, uh, where he climbs the tree and the scripture in verse uh, 9 and 10, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Of course, Zacchaeus was a Jewish tax collector. And the Romans positioned Jewish tax collectors in parts of Judea so that they could make a good living for themselves, but also give to Rome what they wanted out of it. But what I want to point out is that, ask the question, wasn't, wasn't Zacchaeus a son of Abraham before he met Jesus and before he repented of his sin? And the answer is a tricky answer because the answer is yes and no. The answer is yes and no. Yes, he was clearly a descendant of Abraham, but remember what we studied several weeks ago in chapter 9 of Romans and verse 6 when Paul says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham just because they are his offspring. So it's a trick question. Is, is Zacchaeus a son of Abraham? Yes and no. And notice what, what Luke records in Luke's gospel. That story of Zacchaeus is in chapter 19 of Luke. Incidentally, I went on Google and decided I'd ask, uh, how tall was Zacchaeus? They actually gave an answer. <laughs> they actually, can you imagine? Z Google knows how tall Zacchaeus was. He's four foot ten. Well, there you go. Now you know. So in, in, this par in this story of Zacchaeus, the very next verse after Jesus visits Zacchaeus, it says in verse 11 of Luke 19, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now I want you to know that from Jericho where Zacchaeus lived to Jerusalem is 17 miles and on the way, the crowd that was traveling with Jesus was clearly along with him going up to Passover in Jerusalem. And as they were going, they began to study and talk about messianic expectations. The closer they got to the holy city, the more they started talking about, well, I think the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to do this and he's going to do that. 
And the general idea of the Messiah when he would come would be that he would rid us of Roman domination and he would lead us into a period of messianic uh, Jewish supremacy, call it. And so as they're going along after this visit with this tax collector that Jesus now said salvation has come to his house, they're talking about what the Messiah will do. And then, verse 12, Jesus tells a parable. And we don't often get the first part of this parable. What does it say? It says in verse 12, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus coins and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received his kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now, you know the story. You know the parable. The one who'd received 10 coins, he, he turned around and, and doubled it, and so he received authority over 10 cities of the king that had reigned, was reigning now. And the one who received five, he doubled it again. He, he, he got five more, and he received authority over five cities. And the one that got one coin... He was afraid of his master. He hid it in a handkerchief, and he gave it back to him when he returned. And he was condemned for that. The one coin was given to the one with ten. And the lesson of the whole story is that we are stewards of everything that God has given us. Between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, those who follow Jesus are going to be held accountable one day for what we've been given. And Jesus says, for to him who has been given much, much will be required. But we miss the, f- the first part of this parable. We kind of miss the meaning and the relevance and how it landed on the first listeners on that road from Jericho to Jerusalem up to Passover. We miss the meaning. I want you to know that 60 years before Christ, the land of Judea was conquered by Rome, Pompeii. The land of Jerusalem and Judea, and they were subject to Romans, and they began to pay heavy taxes to Romans, thus men like Zacchaeus. The king, the Tetrarch as he was called, was appointed by Rome, and he had to appear physically in Rome to get authorization from the emperor to go back to the land that he was given rule over, and then he could actually begin to reign over them, but he had to go to Rome For example, around the time of Christ, the son of Herod the Great, named Archelaus, had to go to Rome to get title of the land that his father had left him. Even though he was a direct descendant of King Herod, he had to go to Rome and get authority from the emperor. And of course, the people of Judea did not like that. So the parable that Jesus tells touches home with Jesus' traveling companions as they get closer To Jerusalem. It was obvious for them. It was maybe not obvious for them, but we know the meaning of the parable, don't we? That the noble man in the story of the that Jesus told is Jesus. He's the noble man. He was sent by his heavenly father to the Jewish people to receive that kingdom. He's called the King of the Jews. 
And after his death and resurrection, he returns back to his heavenly Father, whereby he will receive full authority to return once again. That's why upon his last words to us in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. You see, we're, that's the stewardship, folks. Between the first and second coming of Christ, the stewardship that we've been given is go and make disciples. Everything that I've given you according to the resources and giftings and abilities that you have, church, your main task is go and make disciples. But this is a particularly pertinent message to the Jewish people who were walking with Jesus to Passover on the day he told the story. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. It says, But their, heart, their minds, referring to the Jewish people, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. We need to know that the Scriptures teach that this people, the Jews, who rejected Jesus upon his first coming, and to this day that we live in today, have continued to re reject Jesus because of the hardness of their hearts. Even now, Jesus has reserved a remnant of Jewish people. And before his second coming, there will be a larger turning back to Jesus, a group of Jewish people that will say, yes, Jesus Christ is our Messiah. For the hardening will be lifted, their hearts will be softened, their ears will be opened, their eyes will be opened, their hearts will be opened as we see the day of Christ's coming draw near. Now, that's a lot to say without having substantiated it in Scripture, but that's where Paul's going in Romans chapter 11. Last week, Tim Noble shared the last verse of Romans 10, where it says in Romans 10 verse 9, All day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's what, that's what God has done with his people. He's, he's held out his hands to his chosen people, the Jewish people, and they have been rebellious. So naturally the thought that is in the minds of many people is then, has God rejected his people? Since they have clearly rejected God and his Messiah, has, have, has God rejected his people? And Paul says, by no means, not at all. So the answer to the question in Romans 9 to 11, what about the Jews? Paul in these three chapters is talking about not only clarifying the role of the Jews in history, but he's having to clarify that God is faithful to his word. He's really vindicating God in the midst of this because God is being blamed for perhaps not being faithful to his word. And so the, the point for the church in Rome and for us today is that, well, well if, if these Jewish people are the apple of his eye, the chosen ones, and, and God maybe has rejected them and not fulfilled his promises to them, well, then how can we know that as Christians he's going to fulfill his promises to us through Jesus Christ? So that's why Paul takes in the middle of after chapters 1 to 8 and, nine, and, and 12 to 16, he takes three chapters in the middle there and he addresses what about the Jews? And that's what we're talking about this fall. And then in, in January, we'll get right back into chapter 12. But obviously, this is an important piece of Scripture. 
I'd like to share three primary thoughts about the verses this morning. And the first one is that God is faithful to not reject his people whom he foreknew. There's three reasons why Paul says God is faithful to not reject his people. And the first reason Paul gives is himself. He, he puts himself. He's exhibit A. He says, I know that God has not rejected his, his people because I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew. I'm a son of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And so I know that God has not rejected his people. James Montgomery Boyce tells a story of a Jewish friend of his who came to faith in Christ. And sometime later, this man was invited to the bar mitzvah of a loved one in the family. And as he got to the bar mitzvah, and he came to this point in the time during a bar mitzvah when all the male members of the family who are present are invited to go into the one whose bar mitzvah it is and read aloud the Torah over him. The rabbi stopped that gentleman from going in to that room, and he said, you can't come in. You are not a Jew. You are a Christian now since you started to follow Jesus. And I think that the response of the man to that objection of the rabbi is similar to what Paul would have said to his Jewish friends after they started saying, well, you're not among us anymore, you're a Christian. Here's what the man said to the rabbi. He said, are you telling me that I am not a Jew? How can you say that I am not a Jew? God made me a Jew. My mother and father were Jews. I am descended from Jews. I am a son of Abraham. Paul writes, God has not rejected his people, for I myself am one of them. And in this statement, I want you to know, Paul is not making only one declaration of identity. He is making two, and we must not miss it. Paul is making two statements of personal identity. One is that he is a, in the bloodline of Abraham, and the other is that he is the blood-bought child of God through Jesus Christ. He is making both statements equally strong. He is saying that he is not only a child of Abraham, but he's a child of the living God. You see, Paul's righteousness did not reside in Paul Paul's righteousness was in heaven at the right hand of God in Jesus Christ. God was not going to judge Paul based on Paul's righteousness. God was going to judge Paul based on his son's righteousness. And that is what Paul believed without any doubts. And so he could say with absolute certainty, God hasn't rejected me. Even though I am a Jew and my people have rejected the Messiah. Now, how did Paul know? It's a good question. Well, you can read about it in Acts 9. He met Christ on the road to Damascus. He had a personal relationship with the Messiah. He had God's Spirit living within him. He was living now a life that was being transformed by this gospel, by this Holy Spirit that lived within him. And so he knew that he was not cast off by God. And if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, you can know that God has not rejected you for the same reasons that Paul knew that God had not rejected him. You have met the Messiah. You have met Jesus. You have a relationship with him. You spoke with him this morning. You have his very spirit dwelling within you. 
residing, starting to do the work of sanctifying grace and now letting you live a transformed life from one degree of glory to another. And you can, you can know, therefore, not only by that inner witness and by the promises of God in his word, you can know God is not going to cast you off. God is not going to cast you off. You have a personal relationship with God. When we get into chapter 12, by the way, and, and we, uh, some of you have already started studying chapter 12 with that book called True Spirituality. It's a right now media uh, video series, and it's by Chip Ingram. If you want to check that out, our website has the uh, connection to, to Right Now Media, a great series. You want to get advanced, look at Romans 12. But we're going to dive into it and take three months to look at Romans 12. Why? Because in Romans 12, it starts to, Paul starts to unpack what the maturing, transformed life of God in the Christian looks like. So if you want to have affirmation that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then start to look at the fruit of your life because Jesus said you'll know every tree by its fruit. And Romans 12 says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, uh, he says, don't, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says God's doing a transforming work. Well, so every one of us, like Paul, can say the same thing as he does. And I want you to know everyone like, uh, of us, like Paul, has a dual identity. We're not schizophrenic. We have a dual identity. That, and, that, and they both are God-given and God-ordained. One is an earthly identity. The family that you were born into. The family that you were adopted into. Your ethnicity or the ethnicity of the people that you grew up with the uniqueness of your family. This is all God's doing, even though every family on earth, every one of our families is dysfunctional and broken because in some way we sin and we are sinned against in family. That's the, that's the first place it happens. And we not only have that earthly identity, but we have a spiritual identity. We are children of the Heavenly Father. If we are followers of Christ, we are adopted into the family through faith in his son. And just as we have a physical address on such and such a street, we have a spiritual address, and that address is in Jesus Christ. That's where you will be found. That's where God looks for you. He finds you in Jesus Christ. Just as I can take a piece of paper and put it in my Bible and say, I am now in Christ. This paper is in the Bible. Everything that happens to this Bible that happens to that paper. Everything that happens to Jesus happens to you. That's what faith in Christ means. That's why when God looks upon you, he doesn't condemn you for all the screw-ups that you've done and will do because you're now in Jesus Christ. You have a spiritual address. But I want you to know that your spiritual address does not negate your earthly address. Your spiritual identity in Christ does not negate your, your earthly, physical identity in the family that you were born into. It actually doesn't negate it, it redeems it. That's what God intends to do. 
He intends to help to rewrite the story of every one of our families, beginning with us as sanctified, grace-filled, people-loving Christians. Friday evening, the youth, I joined them here in the building, 4HG, for his glory. And we had a woman sharing with us who was from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship from, that ministers on the campus of Uni University of Manitoba. Her name was Pauline. And she shared about how hard it was to wrestle through her identity when she moved to Canada from the Philippines. There was a journey of owning her God-given earthly identity in a land where she felt so different from everybody else. But it was her understanding of her spiritual home in Christ that enabled her to understand and embrace her, her earthly and physical identity. And I wonder if some of you younger people today, even this morning, I wonder if you're on the same kind of journey. A journey that, that is learning to adopt, accept, embrace who you are in physical, earthly, familial terms. Not, in, not negating it, but embracing it. Saying, God, this is what you have for me. What else do you have for me? Paul had that journey there were times in Paul's life early as a Christian when his, the Jewish friends and family rejected him, the Christian friends and family rejected him. Paul was a very lonely person at the beginning of his converted life. But then by the grace of God and the loving initiatives of God's people, he came to embrace fully who he was, a Jew and a Christian. Paul knew who he was physically and spiritually, wasn't ashamed of either. And I want you to know you shouldn't be ashamed of either. either. God made you who you are. He put you into the family that he did. He created you. He sent his son to recreate you and into his image and to restore what sin had taken. God loves all people on this earth, all people. One day, I love that picture in Revelation one day when we will see every, every people, language group, ethnicity, family on earth, around the throne of God. There, there will be blacks and Hispanics, First Nations or Aboriginal and Indigenous peoples, Asians and whites and multiracial groups and, and the list goes on and on and on, all beautiful and glorified around the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And John writes in the scripture about what he sees there. John writes in chapter 7, verse 9 in Revelation, After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. Oh, gee, I guess there's more than 144,000 folks. There's a great multitude that no one could number Every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. See, that's what, that's what all these flags, that's just what we see represented in our church, but all of this is moving toward in history. All of it is moving toward that day. In Revelation 7, 9, when we'll gather around the Jesus Christ, the, the Lamb who was slain. Well, let's move on to the second point, And that is that God is faithful to preserve for himself a remnant 
chosen by grace. The first reason that God, Paul knows that God is faithful and has not rejected his people is because he was a Jew and he was not rejected. The second reason is because there has always been a remnant, a people that God has set aside who were Jewish and followers of the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And uh, the word remnant means the remainder. It's a small piece of something left over from the original big piece. And I'm sure that when I mention the word remnant, many of you are going to go to your fabric stores in your minds, and you're going to see that last yard of material on that big roll that you buy. My mom, when she was a seamstress in my early years, I remember her using that term remnant. And she would go to the fabric store and buy that last yard on the roll, and then she'd go home and make a quilt or something. And uh, sometimes she'd make me clothing that I really didn't want to be seen in, but I wore it. <laughs> I remember one time when our family was traveling and we were singing. We, we were the singing janks just for a little season. And, uh, and, and I have an older brother and a younger sister. And the, the, the pastor introduced us and said, It's so wonderful that the janks are here with their son and two daughters. And I knew which one they were referring to, <laughs> this jumpsuit that my mom made me <clears throat> to wear. Anyway, sorry, Mom, we won't go there. <clears throat> we're really off track here. <laughs> Paul's using the term remnant in a very positive way. He's saying that God in every generation has always preserved a people that are faithful to him, even as he is faithful. And to illustrate it, he uses the story of Elijah. Now, you know the story of Elijah. Remember the story of Elijah in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, how incredible that showdown between the 450 prophets of Baal, the demonic prophets of Baal, versus one prophet, Elijah. God shows up. And God shows his power over the kingdom of darkness. And then right after that incre incredible contest, there is this incredible moment of extreme vulnerability in Elijah. Have you ever noticed that, that when God often does something through you, you are the most fragile, the most vulnerable it's almost as though Satan sees what's going on and he says, let's double down on that guy or that girl. And so what does, what does Elijah do? He tucks up his cloak and he runs, he hightails it to the desert. Because why? Because Ahab goes home and says, guess what Elijah did? He, he, we, he killed all the 450 prophets of Baal that worked for us. And his wicked, evil, sinister queen Jezebel, what does she do? She writes a letter. She writes a letter to, to Elijah, and she says, says you're, you're toast. We are going to hunt you down. He, he gets afraid, and he hightails it. He ends up at Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, where, where the Ten Commandments were received. He goes into a cave in Mount Horeb and hides there, trembling in fear. God ministers to him. God sends angels, food, and so on. And then finally, when he's had some rest, God says, now, let's talk about this, Elijah. What are you doing in a cave in Mount Horeb? And what does Elijah say? Elijah says, God, I've been very zealous for you. You know that. And God 
All the people have forsaken you. You know that. And God, they've destroyed the altars that we've built to worship you. And they've killed all the prophets. And, and, and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. And God responds by saying, okay, let's, let's take this a piece at a time. He says, Jezebel, history. I'll take care of her. And he goes through the list. And then at the end of it all, what does he say? And this is what Paul is quoting in Romans chapter 11, 4. God says to him, I have reserved 7,000 prophets who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one. (laughs) Elijah needed to know that God had preserved a remnant. (laughs) Elijah needed to see it from God's view. And verse 5, Paul says this. Verse 5 says, and So at the present time, a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is on the basis, and if it is by, if it is by, no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. You see, what was true in Elijah's day is true in Paul's day, and it's true in our day, that God has a whole bunch of people yet. Now, we might feel that the odds are 1 to 450. When you go to your work site, when you go to school, when you're walking out in the mall, when you look on the television or on the internet, you're going to feel like it's 1 to 450 or 1 to 4,050. I don't know. But the point is, God says, I got all kinds of people. Some of them are already following me, and some of them are yet to become followers of my son, Jesus Christ. But I have a whole bunch of people. And that's why it's so important what Tim Noble was preaching last week in chapter 10 when he talked about the chain of causation. And the chain of causation in chapter 10, Paul talks about all who call upon the name of the Lord. Go to the next slide. Paul says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But he says to them, but how can they call upon someone that they do not believe in? And how shall they believe unless they hear? And how shall they hear unless someone tells them? And how shall they be told unless some are sent? Do you see the cause, the chain of cause? How come it's not coming up? I'm not sure why. <clears throat> I had it on my PowerPoint. <laughs> this chain of causation. Paul is in chapter 10 looking at it from the side of the human, from our side. This is what salvation looks like. This is the journey to salvation. Someone needs to be called, someone needs to believe, someone needs to be hearing it, someone needs to tell them, someone needs to be sent. We're the sent ones. I love it because if we go to the next slide, you'll be reminded of the, the, the chain of five that is in chapter eight of Romans when Paul talks about things like those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, knows he predestined, he also called, knows he called, he also justified, knows he justified, he also glorified. Well, that's looking at salvation from God's side of things. God is saying, I'm faithful. I'm not going to lose one person that I have predestined, that I have called, that I have foreknown, that I have justified, that I have glorified. Now, we can get confused about this very easily, but Paul is trying to bring out both sides, the incredible sovereign God side and the incredibly human responsible side of responding to God. Well, let's look at the final thing I want to say. So far, Paul has upheld the faithfulness of God, number one, by saying that God has not rejected his people because he himself is a Jew and God has not rejected him. 
Secondly, he has referenced Elijah to illustrate that in every generation God has preserved a remnant so we know God is faithful and he has not abandoned his people. And then thirdly, he now shows that God is faithful to fulfill his promises to both Jews and Gentiles throughout history. And though it will require tough love, severe mercy, extreme conditions, unconventional means, God is going to be faithful to his people. Now in verse 7, Paul asks the question, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, but the elect obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Now this is where we get into some really tough stuff. This is where we get into some scripture that is hard to, hard to swallow, hard to understand. And so because it's hard to understand, Paul knows it, he calls three witnesses into the witness stand to bear witness on what he's saying is true. And the three witnesses are Moses, Isaiah, and David. And he quotes in these scriptures in Romans 11, 7 to 12, he, he quotes from Moses and Isaiah and David to show that, that God acts in history always the same way for the sake of his faithfulness, but it's often misinterpreted on earth. Because it seems as though God is the one who gives the spirit of a stupor. God is the one who blinds the eyes. God is the one who hardens the hearts. Why would God do that to his people? Fair question. David, or Paul is saying, well, here, I want you to know that he, he did it in Moses' day when his people went astray. He did it in David's day when his people went astray. He did it in Isaiah's day when his people went astray. Why? Because he loves his people. And so what God is saying, and we don't have time to do an Old Testament survey here, but if you examine any snapshot of Israel's history, any snapshot, time of being slaves in Egypt, wilderness wanderings, entering the promised land, period of the judges, divided kingdom, whether the Jews were dominated by the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Germans, wherever it is that God's people have been dominated, we see that God has allowed that. God has given them over to that. Why? Because God wants his people to see that if they continue to rebel against him and follow those paths, they lead to destruction. But if he can turn them around early and show them early what that looks like, they will come back to him. And they did. Throughout the period of the Judges, throughout the period of the Old Testament, we see that so many times. Following the exile in Babylon and so on. And so Romans chapter 10, once again, all day long, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You know, someone said that it's been a long day, all day long. It's been a long day. 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ. 2,000 years from Christ to, Paul, to, uh, to us. It's been a long day. God has been holding out his hands to Israel. People called by his name. God has been holding out his hands. Come to me. Come back to me. Recognize my Messiah, son, Jesus. It's been a long day. All day long, 
I've held out my hands. But we must see it as God's mercy, God's patience, God's faithfulness. God's holding out his hands to you too. You might not be Jewish, you might be Gentile, I am. I think I might have a little bit of Jewish blood in me from way back, but that's another story. God's holding out his hands to you too. Come to me. John Piper said, all of history is a canvas being painted by an infinitely glorious and mysterious artist. And the point of the painting, (laughs) the point of the painting is the revelation of his glory and the saving of a people. Proverbs 3, Hebrews 12, Bible talks about the Lord disciplines those he loves. It says, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. So whenever we go through discipline, seasons of difficulty, when we seem that God is far away, spiritual dullness, dryness, apathy, the withdrawal of God's presence, the felt presence of God, what is it all meant to be doing? It's all meant to awaken you to the reality of this is what you are by yourself. This is what you'll be be like if you go your own way. And he's meant to bring us back to our senses. We're going to go into it more next week, but I want to conclude with verse 11 of this passage in Romans 11, 11. Paul says, so I ask then, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now the incredible thing here is that the word for stumble here means exactly that. We've all had examples where we've stumbled, but we didn't fall. We've stumbled, we've caught ourselves, or even if we did fall, we've caught ourselves and not made it a, a serious fall. And then the word for fall in this scripture means to literally fall dead. It means to fall fatally. So the point that Paul's making is, did they stumble? Yeah, they stumbled. They haven't believed in their Messiah. But did they stumble that they might fall, done with? God rejected them, eternally lost. No way. God is not done. And next week we're going to talk about the incredible plans that God has for his people Israel. May God bless you. Thank you.